0: After an exceptionally long and tedious sermon, the congregation was filing out by the back door back over there, and they weren't saying anything to the pastor until one man comes out and he said, Pastor, that sermon reminded me of the peace of God and the love of God. Well, the pastor was ecstatic. Nobody had said anything to him so far, and no one had ever said anything quite that good, and he said... Oh, man, that's just awesome. Tell me, how did my sermon remind you of the peace of God and the love of God? Well, the man said, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all human understanding. And it reminded me of the love of God because it endured forever. (laughs) This week, Ann and I were listening to a man teach on the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I think her words went something like this as she feared for you all. She said, I can't wait to see what you do with this text. And uh, she didn't mean that like she was really anticipating it. She meant it like uh, she was dreading it. Uh, So I'm going to do my best this morning. I'm going to do my best to, uh, to make this passage understandable, not like the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And I'm going to try to make it not endure all that long, like the love of God, which endures forever. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And if you happen to be a guest with us this morning, we are studying through the book of Daniel, and we're at, at chapter 9. And this is a passage that Christians understand in different ways, okay? So I hope this morning to bring a bit of clarity to these verses to help you understand how men and women have understood them for years. But I also hope to encourage us this morning to love Jesus because really, I may not want to give my punchline away, but this is all about Jesus this morning, and I really hope to encourage you with the Lord Jesus today, okay? Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 9 in the book of Daniel, Daniel is praying, and he's reading, actually, no, excuse me, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and as he reads the book of Jeremiah, he reads that there are 70 years having been slated by God for the exile into Babylon. When he reads that, evidently he gets encouraged by that. He does the math, knows that they're really at the end of that 70 years. And so the Bible says he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he fasts. And he fasted for that day and he prays. And here's what he prayed. If you were here last week, you remember. He basically says, Lord, keep your word. God, honor what you've said. It's time. Send us back. Honor your city. Honor your temple. Rebuild it. God, do what you've promised. Now, while he is praying, we ended at verse 19. But while he is praying, something happens. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 20. Now, while I was praying, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, that'd be Jerusalem, and while I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the previous vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction, and he talked with me, and he said, Oh Daniel, I have now come forth, obviously from God, to give you insight with understanding. In the beginning at the beginning of your supplications the command was issued and I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision now you remember we met Gabriel for the first time in our Bibles he's going to show up several more times in the New Testament but he's an angel of God we meet him for the first time back in chapter eight in the vision of the ram and the goat in the in the little horn you'll remember that the little horn almost to, almost to every interpreter, was Antiochus IV, although others see it having a dual fulfillment later in the future. Uh, The little horn of of Daniel chapter 8 in that vision was Antiochus IV. And Daniel says, and now in this passage, he says, I'm tired, implying that he's been praying and fasting all day, evidently. It's the evening offering when Gabriel shows up And Gabriel says, when you began to pray, God commissioned me to come. And I've come for one reason, Daniel. I've come to help you understand the vision. And again, uh, I think, as we'll see in just a moment, I, I think the vision has to do with what Daniel has been praying. So let's read. Let's continue reading. We're going to read to the end of the chapter, verse 24 through verse 27. It's not a very long passage. But it's going to be very interesting. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Now, you remember, he's been praying that God would, would do what he said and send them home at 70 years because that's what God had promised through Jeremiah. I'm sorry, let me start again because I interrupted myself. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. "...to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress." And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and to the wing of abominations, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now that may have sound confusing to you. It sounds confusing every time I read it, but hopefully when I'm finished you'll have a better idea of at least how people have understood these verses. So Gabriel in the vision that Daniel sees Gabriel is the vision everybody. Gabriel is the vision. But in this vision, Gabriel is giving him this prophetic message. It's a cryptic message. It's, it's very hard, really, to understand what he says. Although Gabriel says, I've come here to help you understand. I've come here to help you understand, evidently, what you're praying about. Because as soon as you began to pray, God sent me. And so I'm here to help you understand some things about what you were praying. And this is a message, a prophetic message, about the future. Now, again, this is a message that many people consider very significant, as do I, as you will as well, I think, when we're finished, uh, because of of what it really means. Now, there are many different parts to this passage, believe it or not, and people interpret these parts in, in, in a variety of different ways, but there are two main ways of seeing the text, and I hope, when I'm finished, that you'll understand them both. Maybe not, but I hope that you'll understand them both. And then again, I want, to re, I want to repeat myself, but I'm hoping at the very end of this, regardless of how you see it, you're going to be greatly encouraged by what I share at the end. All right. Daniel, I mean, Daniel's been praying about the restoration of his people, the Jews, the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of the temple. And in response, Gabriel says to him, I'm going to read verse 24 again, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal of the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, literally, the text says 70 sevens. Now, look that up, because in every translation, it says 70 weeks. Why don't they make it seventy sevens if that's literally what it says? Well, the word is actually the word for weeks, but it's in the masculine, which evidently means, everybody says it just means a grouping of seven. Okay. So the word is weeks, but in the masculine it always means a grouping of seven and not necessarily weeks. And so every commentator agrees that he's not talking about weeks. He's talking about a grouping of seven. He says, so for your people and for the for your people, what does he say, for your people, and for the holy city, there are 77s that remain. Now, that could be seven days, the the grouping of seven could be seven days, could be weeks, could be months, could be years. Now, the natural reading is years, since Daniel's been talking about years, and almost all commentators to a T believe that the sevens refer to years. And and so Gabriel tells Daniel that there are seventy sevens remaining for your people and for the city to do the six things that, that, that Gabriel mentioned. That, if you, if you add that out, that's 490 years for 490 years remain for your people and your city to do these six things that God says are going to be accomplished in the 490 years. The finishing of transgression, the end of sin, the atonement of iniquity for iniquity, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, the sealing of the vision and the prophecy, and the anointing of the most holy place. Now I'm going to come back to those in a little bit, but let's continue on. So Gabriel continues on in what he says to Daniel, and again, he's trying to help Daniel understand, so he gives him a little bit more detail in verse 25. And so he says in verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So, Gabriel says to Daniel, he says, Daniel, I want you to understand something. There's going to be a decree coming. There's going to be a decree coming pretty soon to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, that's what he's been praying about. He says, from the time of that decree, when somebody says, go back and rebuild Jerusalem, until the coming of Messiah there will be 69 of those 70 weeks. And he divides those 69 weeks or sevens. I'm gonna say both so you just understand years, right? There will be 69 sevens or 483 years, but he divides them into two parts. He says there'll be seven sevens and there'll be 62 sevens. 49 years and 434 years until the coming of Messiah. Now this is so significant, okay? This is so significant. Gabriel tells Daniel, Messiah is coming in 483 years at least. That in, at the end of 483 years, we can expect Messiah to, to come. Now, Gabriel divides the time into the 49 years. And again, most commentators, this is speculation, but most commentators believe that he's dividing that time of 69 sevens into those two parts to talk about the completion of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So the first seven sevens, you follow me, everybody follow me, and then the 62 sevens, all right? The first seven sevens, 49 years, most likely refers to the building up of Jerusalem and to the building up of the temple. One of the reasons we would say that is because if you look at the text, look at verse 25 again, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. And and so, you know, we don't know how long it took to build the temple and, and Jerusalem and the walls and all that. I'm telling you, I'm pretty sure it was 49 years. At the end of 49 years, it was restored. And you notice that he says even in times of distress, it will be rebuilt, right? It, even in times of distress. Remember this when when the temple was built, there was great times of distress because the people the people stopped building. They got more Remember this from Haggai and Zerubbabel. Y'all remember that? And so um, Haggai and Zerubbabel were confronting the people with their their laziness, their their selfishness. And so that was the distress. And then when Jerusalem's walls were rebuilt and Nehemiah came back, you remember how the people of the land were attacking them? And and so really 49 years is is most likely the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding uh, of the temple. That's how long it it takes. But here's where it gets really exciting. And I hope you get this. I hope it lights you up. For the 490 years, listen, falls at the time of Jesus. Falls exactly at the time of Jesus. Do you understand that? In other words, when, when Gabriel told Daniel 490 years, 483 specifically until Messiah comes on the scene, he says, you, 483 years till Messiah comes. I mean, if they were following that, if they really believed it, then then even the, you remember when they came looking for Jesus as a baby? And and so the, was it Herod? Herod asked the wise men, hey, where's Messiah supposed to be born? And he said, well, in in Bethlehem. And so they killed all the children two years and under in Bethlehem because they understood that's where he came from, right? Boy, the scholars, all they had to do was look at Daniel because Daniel says from 483 years, Messiah would become. Now, Now, the problem is, What's the problem? You, this is not rhetorical. Somebody tell me what the problem would be. Where does it start, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure. That's, in fact, that's kind, of a, that's kind of an issue here. Scholars have done this innumerable times. In fact, you can go out there and read on the internet, and you'll find man after man, woman after woman, who tries to tell you this is the beginning of the 483 years And this is the end of the 483 years. And there was actually three decrees that were issued for people to go back to Jerusalem. The biggest and the most well-known one was Cyrus. He was the very first. You Remember, he's the one that at the beginning of the Persian Empire says to the people, you guys go home and rebuild your land, rebuild your city, rebuild your temple. Cyrus is actually prophesied in the book of Isaiah. I'm pretty convinced that's the one that God's referencing. But there were two others. And so when is the end? When's the beginning? Which of those decrees is God talking about, right? And then you got at the end, you know, when when do we count Messiah coming? Was it at his birth? Was it at his beginning of his ministry? Was it at his death? Was it Palm Sunday? What is the beginning of his ministry? And so men and women have tried to tell you where the 483 years, you know, where's the actual beginning and the actual end date? I personally think that is an impossible task. Let me add to its confusion. You know, when it comes to setting dates in antiquity, there are, there are two different historical schools of thought. Ptolemy said there was 14 dynasties in the Persian Empire. The Bible says there were three or four. So who's right? There's a huge difference there if there's 14 dynasties versus 3 or 4. And so even in history, there's that question. Then there's the question of how do you measure a year? In the Old Testament, they were lunar years. The years of the Old Testament were five days shorter than our years. You follow me? And after a millennium, five five years, I mean, five days makes a long time. So here's my point. I'm trying not to confuse you, but I got to get this across. No one knows for sure where to start and where the end. But what is, in my mind, you know, unarguable, it is that those 490 years fall at the life of Jesus. And so we should be encouraged because we know that this very same Gabriel is the one who came to say to Mary, the Messiah is going to be born, the Son of God. You're carrying him. And to Joseph, don't be afraid, Joseph, to to take Mary as your wife because the child she's carrying is the Messiah, the child she's carrying. 490, you all get that? Somebody get excited. Somebody smile. I mean, this really is. I'm not trying to fabricate it. It really is exciting, though, that the 490 years fall right when Je- thereabouts where Jesus comes in. So even though I don't think people can tell you the start date and the end date to perfection, I, I really think, it's a, uh, I think it is a... I just don't think it's possible. But I'm telling you, the 490 years... From from, Gabriel's announcement to Dan, from the announcement of return to Jerusalem to now, or right at the 490 years that God has, uh, has prophesied uh, for, for the coming of Messiah. Now, Gabriel continues in verse 26. And, and, and again, here's where things begin to diverge just a little bit into two understandings. We've got two more verses left. Pretty much everybody agrees with what I just told you, okay? Verse 26, Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And, in the end, and, it, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, so I'm going I'm I'm to share with you both thoughts and I'm hoping you'll get them. i hope you'll understand. you be able to follow both of them. And then I'm, it's up to you to decide which of these you think really Gabriel was trying to say. Well, there's two schools of thought, and I'm going to start with the one that you're probably most familiar with, okay? And in this way of saying verse 26, it, it goes like this. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, 62 weeks follows 7-7, you know, 49 years for 483 years. Everybody agrees with that. It's not it's not a different 69 sevens. It's the 69 sevens that follow the seven sevens. <laughs> Everybody with me? All right, okay. So we're talking at 483 years. Messiah will be cut off. In this first way of thinking, everyone believes that's talking about the death of Jesus that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to die. Okay, of course, the Jews didn't follow, they didn't understand that, they didn't believe that. Messiah was going to be this conquering hero who would never die, or or if he did die, he died in his old age. He He was never going to die like Jesus died. But in this prophecy, Gabriel tells them... He says that after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And so in this first way of thinking, at year 483, Messiah dies. So in the first way of thinking, the death of Jesus is the end point of the 483 years. All right? Now, in this way of thinking, what happens, what people suppose, is that the counting down of the timeline of 490 years, that it stops. Messiah dies, and time stops. And so we still lack seven years to be completed. And that seven years is somewhere off in the future, even for us, because it has not started yet. 483 years have taken place. Messiah is cut off. And then in the middle of that verse, if you go back to the verse, then between the, the nothing and the people of the prince, there, there is a stop. Okay, I put it up there. Time stops. We'll start again in the future. That second half of the verse then is the future seven years that will start up at some point coming. Now, we don't know when it's going to start up. Uh, it'll, it'll just happen. And in most, most believers who hold to this position, not all, but many would say that the beginning point of that is God's going to take all Christians off the earth. All, all those who follow Jesus will be removed from the earth, and all that will be left will be unbelieving people at that point. You may have read the Left Behind series, you may have watched the movies, and, and so that, that's, that's the beginning of the seven years, and the seven years will begin at that point. And so let's continue on in the text. So what's going to happen according to this way of thinking, Then the next part of that verse, of verse 26, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so that prince who is to come, by the way, that prince word there is just a generic word for ruler, And so there's coming a ruler in the the future, and his people are going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the sanctuary in the future. He's most often referred today in this way of thinking as the Antichrist. You've probably heard that before. In this way of thinking, the people of the Antichrist will come like a flood, wage war against Israel, and bring about desolations on, on Israel. The next verse, verse 27, in this way of understanding the text, continues in a chronological, linear, linear way. And so verse 27 follows chronology in, in, in a linear kind of way, time-wise, time-wise, time-wise. It says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes the the desolation or who makes desolate. So in this way of understanding, the he of verse 27 is that same, is that, uh, excuse me, a verse, excuse me, the he of verse 27 is the prince of verse 26. And so the he who makes a firm covenant with them for a week, with the many for a week, is talking about the Antichrist making a covenant with the Jews, the many would be the Jews, but in the middle of that last seven years, so at the three-and-a-half-year point, he's going to stop, the Antichrist is going to stop all sacrifices in the temple. He's going to do something like Antiochus did and sacrifice a pig or something of that nature to himself. Or he's going to I think, I think the idea is he's going to sit on the throne and declare himself to be God, and he's going to put an end to the sacrifice and grain offering uh, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. So he's going to come and he's going to attack the Jews. He's going to completely destroy or bring the temple to an end at that point. And then until the one who makes desolate on him that's been decreed is the coming of Christ. So in this way of thinking, that he and all of these verses are really referring to the Antichrist. And he's going to wage war on the Jews. And in the middle of that three and a half weeks, he's going to make a covenant with them, but then he's going to break it. He's going to bring to an end all the Jewish worship in the temple at that point. And, uh, and he is then Jesus is going to come and destroy him. So I have a graphic. Let me see if I can walk you through it. So here's a graphic that kind of presents this. So we have 483 years, six, 69 weeks, 49 years, 43. So the completion of the walls by Nehemiah, you see that. And then from the time that Jesus dies until it starts up again, until time starts up again, we, we have this, what's happening right now. And in this way of thinking, the church, that is us, us who, believe, who are believers in the Lord Jesus, it, it, we're often called the, the, the parentheses, we're often called something that God's doing different than what he did prior to the cross, and then what's he going to do after we're taken out of here? So that is, that is a major perspective in understanding these verses. I'm not going to go over it anymore, but I, I hope you followed me, okay? So if you want to nod your head, I get it. That'd be great. All right. Now, I think there's two challenges to this perspective, and let me just put them out there. Uh, for those of you who hold to this perspective in particular, I think there's two challenges. One is that there is no reference in this passage to an Antichrist. There's a reference to a ruler, but he's not even the object of the, uh, he's not even the subject of the sentence. It's the people of the ruler who are the subject of the sentence. And, and so I really believe that there's no reference to the Antichrist. In fact, here's something for us to consider. There is actually no reference of an Antichrist in the whole Bible. There is a reference to many many antichrists, and there is a reference to a spirit of antichrist, and there is a reference to some other men in the the Bible that people say are the antichrist, but there's no reference to an antichrist in the Bible. But the bigger challenge to this perspective that I see, that again I want to put out there for you guys to consider, is that there is no hint in verse 26 of a 2,000-year gap between the first phrase of the verse In the rest of the two verses that follow. There there is no hint of any kind of gap between the 69th and 70th week in this prophecy. Now, if you've been with us for our entire study, here's here's something you may remember, that that people have interpreted this whole book of Daniel in this way. Some people find a gap between the legs of iron and the toes of iron and clay. And so there's a gap placed in there, a gap of of 2,000 years. And then in the vision of the beast coming up out of the water and the fourth beast that's killed and the ten horns that grow on his head, that there is a gap between the beast and the horns that grow out of his head, a, a, a gap of, again, 2,000 years. And again, we're finding a gap here in these verses. And so I think for folks that hold that position, here's just a challenge. You know, it, it's okay to have gaps, but normally the text seems needs to imply that there's going to be a gap, I would think. So just a challenge to that way of perspective, that perspective, and in fact, I do want to say to you that the gaps weren't found by by believers until 1850, until the middle of the 19th century. That doesn't make it wrong, it's just simply saying that for most of the first two millennia, believers did not see the gaps that that people are seeing in these verses. So that brings us to the second understanding. So let me see if I can go back through the verses and, and, and show you a different way of looking at verses 26 and verse 27. So, let's start again with the verse. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. In this view, verse 26 is understood as a general statement of what happens after, uh, after the 483 years. And in this general statement, two things are going to happen. Number one, Messiah is going to be cut off. And just like, just like the first view, I think all Christians believe that the putting the Messiah being cut off is a reference to his dying. The difference would be that in the first group, it happens at year 483. The second group is simply saying that after the first, after the first 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. As a matter of fact, in the second way of thinking, Messiah is cut off in the middle of the second week. And then the second thing, after Messiah dies, again, it's not necessarily immediately. In other words, it's not necessarily going to happen in that last seven years because time has continued on past those 70 weeks. And so what happens after week 483 doesn't necessarily have to happen in, I mean, after the 69th week, doesn't have to happen within the week, all right? So with those two caveats, let me walk you through the text. So here's where it really gets different. In this understanding, the people of the ruler who destroyed Jerusalem are not the subjects of an antichrist still in our future, but rather are the armies of the Roman Empire in AD 70, who both destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem utterly. And they left the temple desolate and it's been desolate for 2000 years. And so this way of understanding, the ruler then, the prince, who is the prince? Who is the prince that is coming, that's going to destroy the temple and the city? Well, in this way of understanding, the prince isn't a future antichrist for us. The prince would have been one of two people. He would have been, you tell me, who might he have been? Who? Who? Titus. Titus is one suggestion. He was the Roman emperor who became the Caesar later. He was the one who actually led the assault against Jerusalem and destroyed it. So the the people of the ruler to come would have been for Daniel, it would have been the Roman empire and it would have been Titus. But there's still another suggestion as to who the prince is. And the prince in this case may not be Titus, but Gabriel could have been talking about God himself that the prince is the Lord Jesus, that the prince is the Messiah himself. If you go back to the text and and think of it in this way, who's the antecedent to to this passage? Well, it's the Messiah. After 62 weeks, uh, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince, of the ruler who is to come, i.e. the Messiah, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So in this way of thinking, the prince is the Messiah himself, would be the Lord Jesus. He's actually the antecedent in the passage. And in this way of thinking, the Roman arm, army would have been the people of Jesus. That Jesus, God, the Roman army is doing God's bidding. In much the same way that God calls the armies of Babylon his army to do his will. In the same way, God is saying that he's gonna use Rome here to do his bidding. Now, verse 27 is seen a little bit different as well. And so verse 27, instead of being a linear continuation, instead of being a continuation of what happens chronologically in time, verse 27 is Gabriel again doing what he said from the beginning he was going to try to do, which was to bring clarity. So verse 27, rather than being a linear continuation, is rather a a greater explanation of what's going to happen in the last week. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In this way of thinking, the he who makes the firm covenant isn't a future antichrist, but it's the Lord Jesus. And he is going to make a firm covenant, a new covenant, with all of God's people, with the Jews and with the Gentiles. In other words, the many then, in verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with the many, is distinguishing the Jews from the Gentiles and saying he's going to make a covenant with all mankind for whosoever will may come by faith in the Lord Jesus. He's going to do it for one week. And so for seven years, he's going to make this covenant uh, with his people. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifices and grain offerings. And so in this way of thinking, it is the Messiah who is going to stop the sacrifices and the grain offerings. And he's going to do it not with power, not with an army, but he's going to do it by dying as the one and only forever sacrifice who takes away our sin forever. He brings to an end all the sacrifices of the Old Testament by dying himself and and making them obsolete with no more need to be done. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. That's talking about 40 years in the future when the Roman Empire is going to come and make desolate and completely destroy the temple until the time that God has decreed for them to be made desolate, which would have happened in the year 400 and something when Rome was defeated so you'll remember that uh you'll well let me go on so 40 years so rome will be defeated now is there any new testament evidence to support this way of understanding daniel because i know this is going to be different for many of you but is there any way of understanding this from the new testament i think so i think there's some good support for it in matthew 24 this is like a class isn't it today all right matthew 24 luke 21 and mark 13 Jesus has been through the temple and he walks through and he looks up at the magnificent building of the temple. It's the temple that's been rebuilt during the time of, 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 of uh, Zerubbabel, right? It's that temple. He's walking through the temple and he looks around and he says, Guys, I want to tell you something. Not a single stone is going to be left on top of another. This whole thing is going to be raised to the ground. Later on that day... They're up on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, and some of his disciples come to him, and they say, when is that going to happen? The things that you talked about, when is it going to happen? Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 3. Mark 3 kind of gives us the most detail. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, so these four disciples come to Jesus, and they were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. What things? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now Jesus begins to tell them some of the things that will accompany that destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem. And he even tells some of them, he says, and he's talking to the four of them. So he's saying, John, and he's saying, Peter and Andrew and James, one of you is going to be standing here. One of you is going to be alive when these things take place. And of course, we know who that would be. Who would that have been? They would have been John, right? And so John would have been alive at the destruction of Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, some of you are going to be alive to see this. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus makes this statement. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So Matthew 24, Jesus is telling them about when the complete destruction of the temple is coming. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. I think he's talking about what we're reading right now. Somebody asked me about the abomination of desolation under Atticus, and how does that fit with this? Well, I I think they're two separate things. This is a different one. It's not talking about the same abomination of desolation. He's pointing to this one. Now... um, Luke, who's talking about the very same thing, and listen to what Luke says, because you'll you'll tell by by the words, he's talking about the very same thing. Luke gives a little bit more detail. Listen to what Luke says. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. It's easy to see that Matthew and Luke are talking about the same thing. And Luke tells us that it has to do with armies surrounding the city. And when you see those armies surrounding the city, know this, the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple is near. And indeed, in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed and has never been rebuilt. So I have another graphic for you. Let's put the other graphic up here. So in this way of thinking, it looks like this. The the 69 weeks end... Um, at uh, probably the baptism of Jesus and uh, the death of Jesus is in the middle and so the 70th week would come to an end three and a half years after, after Jesus rises from the dead. Now some people have said what's significant what, what, what about the where does it end? Where does the 7th I mean, the 70th, seventh end. And you can speculate on that. I would say it could have been preaching to Cornelius when the, Baptist, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. It could, some, I think this guy says the conversion of Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles. That's where he believes that three and a half years ends, but, but it ends, somewhere'd be conjecturous exactly where it ended, but it ended three and a half years after, after Jesus dies, dies and rise again. So those are the two ways of understanding that. If you're really confused, I'll be glad to try to explain it. I try to do my best, all right? And, and I'm almost out of time, and I really want to, to end on a, on a really positive note. So here's what I want to say. It behooves you to study this. I'm, I was greatly encouraged by this, and I'm greatly encouraged by, by understanding it better myself. So I'd encourage you to do that. But, but here's my point. Whether you believe the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 is the fulfillment of what Daniel promised, or whether you believe what Gabriel promised, or if you believe that the fulfillment of the 490 weeks lies somewhere in the future, here is something we can all agree on, okay? Listen, here it is. This prophecy is about Jesus and about what he was going to do. So let's go back to the beginning of, of what Gabriel said when he said that to fin- in the 490 years that have been allocated for your people and for Jerusalem, Here's what's going to happen in those 40, 490 years. The finishing of the transgression, the making of an end to sin, the make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And here's what I want to do as I finish. I want to show you how Jesus is the completion of all of those things. Number one, Jesus finished the transgression for us. Now let me say this. This is a bit ambiguous. Exactly what does this mean? I I have to confess. I'm I'm going to be speculating. But on the cross, as Jesus died, he screamed out loud. Not a scream of defeat, not a scream of agony. I think a scream of victory. But he said, It is finished. He finished transgression for us. He paid for our sin, and the power of sin was broken on the cross. And he, Jesus, put an end to sin. That's the second one. On the day Jesus died, sin came to an end. Sin was dealt its its death blow. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood of its own. As a matter of fact, Jesus was going to stop the sacrifices. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest, now note the next words, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Jesus put to an end sin. In, in, uh, in verse 27, inasmuch, this is Hebrews, it says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You know, when Jesus comes back, it's not to put away sin. He already put away sin when he died for it. He's coming back to resurrect us into a regenerated, completely new life in a kingdom that he's prepared for those who love him. He's not coming back with reference to sin. He's already dealt with that. He atoned, Jesus atoned for our wickedness. That is to forgive. That is to make reconciliation. If you were here in Sunday school... You know, God includes the book of Philemon in our Bibles because God says it behooves all of us to make reconciliation with others as best we can, to be agents of it and to be people who ourselves are willing to be reconciled to others. But here's what 1 John says, 2-2. He is the atoning, the reconciling sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Jesus atoned for your sins and mine. Jesus brought an everlasting righteousness. Our righteousness does not depend on us. It depends on Jesus who justifies us. So Isaiah 53 says, By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many for he will bear their iniquities. That's what Jesus did for you and me. Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus brought in everlasting righteousness to every one of us. He sealed up the vision and prophecy. To seal up can mean a number of things. The word has a great range of meaning, but at least one of the meanings is to seal up would be to complete, to fulfill, to confirm. And Jesus confirms this prophecy completely. And not only this one, but he confirms all kinds of Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. And finally, he was anointed the most holy, the most holy place. Now, your text doesn't say holy place. Your text actually, my, my version said holy place, but the text says he was anointed the most holy of holies. And, and personally, I think that's talking about Jesus. E- even people who believe that the temple's coming back and the, and the holy place is coming, the holy of holies is coming back, even agree with this, that it's really talking about Jesus. He is the most holy of holies. Do you remember, do you remember that Jesus said in Matthew 12, 7, One greater than the temple is here. The holy of holies had come to live among us. Peter, preaching to Cornelius, he said, to Cornelius, he says, God has anointed Jesus with his spirit and with power. I I believe Jesus was the anointed most holy of holies. 490 years have run their course, or maybe not. Jesus had been anointed Jesus had been anointed when 483 years ran their course. Let me say it that way. When 483 years had run their course, Jesus had been anointed the Son of God with power. He had atoned for our sins with his own life. He had made an end to the transgressions and sin and brought in everlasting righteousness with the new covenant that he made with us who put their trust in him. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.